Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, listeners, and welcome to episode 145 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me, never letting go, hopefully, of this podcast, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. But he's not the only one joining me on this door tonight. In fact, I'm not even the only Aaron here today. This week, we welcome blogger, writer, and film critic Aaron Hundley to the show. Howdy, y'all. Now, you may know Aaron from our Facebook discussion group or the handful of film reviews she's written for us. And if you don't, consider this your invitation to get to know her because she's one awesome lady and we are thrilled to have her with us for this discussion. So it is week three of our James Cameron Director Month, and with it comes a film of unsinkable size, coming in at three hours and 15 minutes, uh, with a whopping budget of $200 million way back in 1997. $200 million was a lot more than it was today. Uh, James Cameron's... It's still a lot. <laughs> for, for me, it is. <laughs> to us, you know what I mean, though. From studio yeah. standards, there weren't a lot of movies getting $200 million budgets like there are today. But uh, James Cameron's Titanic, you know, it, it set out to tell the story of one of the biggest tragic events in history. And we are here to discuss whether or not we think it succeeded. So here is your obligatory spoiler alert. If you haven't seen Titanic, well... Wow. You know, what's funny, guys, actually, I was on Twitter posting about Titanic quite a bit this weekend, and I had some people respond to me telling me they had never seen this film. And a couple of them specifically called it out and said it had reached the point where now they were not seeing it like out of spite or out of consistency, rather. Like they'd gone so long without seeing it that they didn't want to break that streak more so than any other reason. So... There are a few people out there that haven't seen this movie. If you happen to be one of them, please turn away. Uh, go watch the amazing film because it is definitely worth your time. And come back. <laughs> exactly. It is one for the history book. And then listen to us afterwards. Well, to get started, we always do our one-word takeaways, Aaron. And so we like to let our guests go first. So if you don't mind, what's your one-word takeaway? My one-word takeaway was sacrifice. So when people think of this movie, a lot of people are going to automatically assume that I'm discussing, you know, the sacrifice that Jack made for Rose at the very end. Um, you know, but James Cameron had a beautiful way of showing varying degrees of sacrifice throughout the film. Um, everything from Rose's mother, who willingly and <laughs> repeatedly sacrificed her relationship with her daughter for the sake of saving their family name and reputation after they lost all their money. Um, there's a sacrifice of lifeboats that the boat designer had to make in order to keep the view beautiful for first class passengers. Um, there's the faithful musicians at the very end of the movie who choose to play through the chaos and sacrifice themselves. Um, you know, there is the adage of men and, you know, women and children first. So we have men that are sacrificing themselves so that their wives, partners, children can have a life. Um, we also see there are moments in the movie where, you know, we see parents tucking their children in when they know what's about to happen, making that ultimate sacrifice so that they don't have to leave the world without them. Um, the film culminates with Jack sacrificing his life for Rose, but I think that the impact comes from his refu her refusal to let that be in vain, let 
his death be just the end of that sacrifice. Um, the fact that James Cameron started the film, I think with actual footage of the Titanic, the Titanic wreck, he walks you through how it happened and why it happened. To me, that's what actually makes the sacrifice hit home. It lends depth to that sacrifice. Hey, you even got a pun in there. I like it. We, we're big fans of the water puns here on the show. No, I told you, puns are my life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Patrick, what about you? Where'd you land for your one more takeaway? Um, well, my one more takeaway was freedom. And uh, it, it comes from the fact that when I watch a movie like this, I, I ask myself, what is it trying to say? I mean, at three hours and 15 minutes, it's got to be saying something or at least a number of little things or maybe one big thing. And so I'm asking, is this a love story amidst disaster, as we alluded to last week? And I think um, it might be even a commentary on the class system that was unapologetic in the way that it carried itself. Um, and maybe it was a director who was trying to satisfy his inner explorer and using a historical narr narrative as, as an excuse. And it may be all of those things or one of those things. But the word that I think encompasses all of the, those ideas is this word freedom. Um, being aboard this unsinkable ship on her maiden voyage evokes this sense of freedom, uh, cut off from the confines of normal life. And I've actually felt this way when I've gone cruising the, the two times that I've gone. I felt like, wow, yeah, I mean, we are just isolated, but there's just so much going on. And so I feel like, you know, I am the king of the world when I'm on this big giant ship uh, with all these people out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and for Rose, I think that freedom plays out in her fight not to be tied to the life that's chosen for her. Um, she's fighting against this kind of world where she is not part of that by default. And she feels like it might take something away from her if she continues to allow herself to be kind of tied up in it. And, you know, for Jack, it's a freedom to challenge this class system that tells people where they should be, not only on a ship, literally, like first class or third class, but also in life. And then finally, we got Cameron as a director and his big budget that creates this freedom to explore this historical event through this aquatic archaeology and storytelling. And I remember reading about how much he really felt like he wanted to know as much as he could about this event. And in some ways, the movie was sort of a byproduct of that. And like you, Aaron, I love the fact that we, we start with like the exploration that, in fact, almost like we start and we end with footage from underneath. Now, whether it's actually tr like actual footage or whether it's digitized or whatever, I absolutely love, love, love the very last shot of going from what would be currently the Titanic underwater and how it morphs into you know, going back because that to me encompasses exactly what we were doing as an audience. We were going from present to past in a way that is connected by this ship. And I thought it was pretty fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned the, the cruising cause I had that reference as well, but more so being on multiple deployments when I was in the Navy and being out at sea and there is a, a freedom to it. It's an interesting feeling because you you are kind of self-contained on a ship like a cruise ship or whether it's a Navy vessel. It's like that is your entire world. Um, and it's like this whole living ecosystem that we get to see. And, and so there's there's a freedom that comes with that that you're not used to um, within the confines of that ship. Well, for me, 
I am going with the word grounded. And I use this word sort of in jest because, you know, the movie's about a ship that sinks and so grounded is a great joke on that. But seriously, Jim Cameron is a master, plain and simple. This film is epic, it is emotional, it is historical, and it is technically marvelous. For me, it's the total package and it completely holds up on subsequent viewings. And honestly, I don't understand the hate it gets. I'm looking at you, John, from the About to Review podcast. <laughs> if you don't feel something when you're watching this movie, I believe that your heart is as icy as the waters that the Titanic sunk in. And the primary reason for that is, I think, Cameron's decision to tell this story in such a deeply connective human way. Like you guys mentioned, you know, grounding the disaster and the eventual loss of so many lives by letting us experience them up close. We see different classes, we see friendships, we see families, and then we get an hour and a half of this romance before the actual event even starts. And I think it is one of the all-time great cinematic decisions. It takes a special, impactful effort of storytelling to earn this kind of box office and award success that Titanic did, and the reason it stands out so much to me is because of this one major choice in grounding it in that human element that so many disaster films attempt, but wind up getting terribly wrong. All right. Well, now we know we all seem to pretty much agree that we like this movie. That's good. That's a good start. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have to try and throw anybody off the boat here on the podcast. Now, I know I have my own story about my first time and my first times seeing this film in theaters, which came out December 19, 1997, a long time ago. But I would really love to hear what you guys' first experience seeing this movie was. How many times do you think you've seen it? And do you have any memories related to it? So, Aaron, how did yeah. Titanic go for you? So, um, I don't remember exactly how old I was when I saw it, but I did not get to see it in theaters. Um, my, I remember my mom had purchased it on VHS uh, when it came with those handy dandy two parter, I know we were talking about it earlier in reference to another movie, but, uh, I remember watching it and I was just, I was struck by how much depth in storytelling there was. And as a little kid, I used to love writing stories. So anything that had a good foundation in storytelling, not to mention the historical parts of it, I found incredibly fascinating. And so my mom, I managed to convince her to let me watch it at a relatively young age. Um, and probably my favorite memory is in the middle of the movie when it's, it's quote unquote intermission and you have to switch it over to the second tape. It, I believe it happens almost right after the sex scene. And so my mom, since I was a relatively young and impressionable child, had fast forwarded through the sex scenes. So I couldn't see that hand on the window. Apparently that would have just given everything away. And so she fast-forwarded it, swapped out the VHSs, and then made me turn around so that she could fast-forward through the remaining part of it, and then picked right back up when tragedy strikes. Wow. Well, that's some yeah. uh, that's some good parenting, I guess, if you <laughs> want to call it that. It's some very very slick parenting when yes. it comes to <laughs> protecting you from what she didn't want you to see. What about you, Patrick? When did you first see it? Ah, uh, well, this was um, you would know about this, Aaron, being from Arkansas. There was a big theater that was like the spot to go to in town called the cinema 150 and the reason why it was called 150 is that was the degree of view that you would get in the theater it was 150 degrees of actual viewing and it was pretty fantastic you could see uh, i think the last movie i saw there was x x-men 2 
which is pretty fantastic. But I'd seen the re-release of some of the Star Wars movies there. And I've only seen Titanic. Well, I've seen it three times. The first time was in the theater at Cinema 150. And it was probably the most awkward movie experience of my life because I went with uh, at then our youth minister at the time. And when it came to the sex scene, I just remember feeling the red just get right in my (laughs) face. And we didn't talk about that at all. Like when we left the theater, he said, how was it? I said, it was good. Did you like it? Sure. And then he, you know, I think we went back to, I think I'd ridden with him and then he took me back to, uh, to my parents' house. And, you know, I don't think we ever discussed it again. And, and I enjoyed it as much as I guess a high school kid could. I remember it being just a big epic movie. Like, wow, look at all this water and disaster. But the second time I, I watched it was, Back in 2012, during the 100th anniversary, when I don't know if it re-released in theaters, but I, I ended up renting it. And and like you, Aaron, I, I watched it from a different vantage point. I watched it from this, wow, a lot of stuff actually took place here, that there's a lot more going on here than just a love story or just a disaster, that there was this really interesting combination of telling both stories and that time in my most recent viewing a few days ago reminded me of why I actually enjoyed it. I'm probably one of those people that enjoyed the historical aspect of it more than the love story. And and I think that there's a good camp of people that were like that. In fact, I remember reading some of the social media comments when uh, Aaron posted the the picture, the, the cover photo, and somebody said, um, I'd rather watch the documentary. And I kind of laughed at, at that comment, but then I said, you know what? That's kind of what I wanted to do after watching this, is I wanted to go into more of that historical part of everything about the Titanic, find out what was true, what wasn't, what parts James Cameron put in there that helped elevate the authenticity of the story, even knowing that actual people like Jack and Rose, maybe not actual people, didn't exist, but maybe they were composites of folks that were that were on the ship. And for better or for worse, I really enjoyed the historical side of this movie even more so than the than the romance. Yeah, I don't I don't think you're necessarily alone there. Um, and you know, I, I would venture to say that those who fall in love with Leo over this movie. Um, probably enjoyed the romance a lot. Um, but there, there's definitely something to be said about the historical aspect. I mean, the romantic kind of main section of this film, like, is not the whole thing. I mean, it's three and a quarter hours long. So there's plenty of other stuff to go on and to focus on. It's interesting you mentioned that theater because that is precisely where I saw Titanic as well for the first time. Um, for the first one, two, three times, I think it was, actually. And I always wondered why they called it the Cinema 150, so I'm glad that you called out that it had to do with the degrees. It, it is, it's kind of like, it, it had the feeling of like Seattle Cinerama era, and it's, it's, it was a rotunda, like a complete circular theater. Yeah. And it, it was just really unique. I'd never been anywhere quite like it before. But, so December 97 comes. This was our graduation year, Patrick. So we had been seniors. This was, I guess, I wasn't in college because I was, I was getting ready to go into the Navy here in about a month. 
I was going to be leaving. You would have been, I guess, in your first year of college. I think you were at UALR, which was right down the street from the theater at the time. I'm not yeah. sure. Didn't you start there? No, I started at Washington. I ended up at, at okay. Euler. I got it backwards. Yes, you're right. Euler was right down the road from it. It was. And so for me, you know, I was in the midst of a relatively new relationship at the time. Um, and my first viewing there was with my girlfriend, who would eventually become my first wife. Uh, so I, I have very strong memories of seeing this film. Uh, like I said, it's about a month before I went into the Navy. There's a lot of things, the romance, the going on a ship and sailing out to sea coming to be part of my life very soon. Um, I remember holding hands and bawling throughout the film, thinking about, you know, that I would be going away and, oh my God, what if I die on, uh, you know, what if my ship hits an iceberg? And, you know, I also have some very vivid memories of teenager, you know, making out in the back row because that's what we did at that age. So, um, yeah, I have strong, strong memories of my first viewing of Titanic and it was great, but I don't think I focused on the movie a lot the first time around in subsequent viewings. I started to appreciate it though, for the epic nature of it, because I think for us, it was, it was just such a blockbuster, unlike any other blockbuster you'd ever seen. You know, when you went to see a blockbuster, you didn't think of them in historical context. It was Armageddon. It was Jurassic Park. There were fantastic elements to it or sci-fi, these big kind of bombastic stories. And so this was just very wholly different than anything before. Uh, I really regret personally not seeing it when it came out in its 3D re-release. Did you guys, you guys didn't do that either? Aaron, did you? I didn't. No. No, I didn't. Well, I've heard very good things about it. I've heard unsurprisingly that James Cameron was able to make the 3D actually, you know, a, a good experience in going very back. Very hit or miss on 3D. Yeah, I am too. I am too. Absolutely. But I think, I think like specifically in the scenes where we're going through the ship, Mm -hmm. um, that it very well could have been a pretty amazing thing for him to have done. And I do trust him when it comes to 3D, more so than I trust most people. But yeah, this movie was at number one for 15 straight weeks. Um, when you take into account the adjusted for inflation box office gross, it, it is like number five all time, I think, or it was a couple years ago. May have been surpassed by a few comic book movies at this point. Um, but it, it, it has really, it was a cultural force. And, one thing I was curious about is what you guys think of the backlash, because I don't know how many people you know in your lives that are adamant Titanic haters. Aaron and I have one for sure. Um, <laughs> John of the aforementioned uh, host of the About to Review podcast, who has been on this show with Patrick and myself a couple times. Um, he absolutely hates it. I think he watched it for the first time with you a year ago or two years ago, Aaron. Yeah, I, uh, I believe it was last year. Me and Tim, we had... Um... We did an episode of his podcast where we talked about movies that people had built up that were super hyped or classic movies that we wish that we had watched before. So we called it, I think we called it uh, Never Too Late. And so we each got to kind of pick and choose movies for each other to watch over a certain time period. And then we came back and we talked about it. So I'm wondering what you think the reason is. Like wh what, what makes people so just anti-Titanic now when clearly for literally a year of its run in theaters, it, most everybody was completely obsessed with it. Like, why is it? Why did that change? 
I think that a lot of it, one, I think a lot of it has to do with like time. Time is the enemy of all things. And when you have a movie like Titanic that has been hyped up repeatedly, and like you said, for a year, it was the end all be all. It had not only topped charts as far as uh, income, but on top of all that, you had people that were bringing goodness knows how many other people to go see it for the umpteenth time. That's really hard. Um, and I know that there have been several movies where I've had people in my life that are obsessed with them, that have talked me into watching them for months and months and months. And then I watch them and I'm like, wait, that that was what you were excited about? Like, oh, cool. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of it has to do with over time, the movie has gotten very, very hyped up. And that, that's a hard bar to set. And everybody's going to set that bar differently when they have people in uh, like influencing their opinions about it. But the other thing is we've had so many amazing movies come out over the last 10 years that it's, it's pretty stiff competition to have a movie that you didn't grow up with or have like a triggering memory, like attached to it to where you could maybe find a home in this film. Like if you aren't a diehard, you know, love story person or somebody that enjoys history, like the biggest problem that I have with this movie is the historical inaccuracies that they are depicted but at the end of the day, I can still set that aside and enjoy the movie for the entertainment value that it presents. But awesome. I also feel like I grew up with that a little bit because I watched it at such a young age. Yeah, uh, I think I think you're absolutely right. Patrick, did you would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that a movie like Titanic, because of its high hype value from a lot of individuals, it it can't live up to those expectations. And the fact that it's it's a movie that isn't while financially i guess you could say it's globally accepted as a success because of that high value from i guess a a certain audience it's it's almost overexposed and i think that maybe it it's length of a run in the theater which was rare for movies i mean the time period itself 1997 we weren't getting the video on demand stuff several months after the fact. And I don't know that we had a lot of, well, we had the dollar theater. I mean, that was the experience, but a lot of times there was a big gap in between when a movie released in a theater and then when it eventually went to video. This was one of those rare movies that was actually released on home video, even while it was still in theaters. And so I think the longevity and exposure of it got to a place where it was not something that it wasn't cool to like Titanic. I think that was the big factor. It was like its success kind of became a its detriment because after a while you're like, really Titanic? It's still in the theaters. Come on. It's, I mean, people are just going for that sex scene I and mean, that's really what's happening. And people love Leo. And and that's what it became, at least in my circle of, of, of friends and the people that didn't like it. They were like, it's so stupid. Why would people go see that? I mean, it's just a bunch of teenage girls that really just want to go see Leo when honestly, that's not the case. There was so much more about it that was enjoyable, but as a person who would enjoy those things, you couldn't really admit that because it was really overshadowed by the fact that the big, the big story was Leo and Kate, you know, Leo and Kate, Leo and Kate, Leo and Kate and their romance. And going back to what you said, Aaron, it's not to me, it's not the strongest of love stories. It feels quite literally romanticized which it's supposed to but in a movie that has a grounded backstory a grounded narrative 
you have this thing that's kind of juxtaposed against it that almost mm-hmm. it is real, but it doesn't feel real. Like things that happen in the movie, you're kind of like, well, yeah, because that's what's supposed to happen to a couple. She's supposed <laughs> to leave him because her fiance is a jerk. Yeah. But that's stuff you don't necessarily know at the time. I mean, 97, we weren't necessarily getting those kinds of stories. And I think the fact that it's such a big movie gets overshadowed by what we consider tropes now. Yeah, I'm with you guys both. Totally. I do think that its success works against it. I think that happens for most films um, like this. When something gets so big that somebody is seeing it for the first time and they already know, hey, this won 11 Oscars, you know, this holds records, this made the most money ever and all of these things. They're watching it through different eyes, like you said, Aaron. It's They're not just watching it for the first time kind of to make their own opinions. They're watching it, like you said, with this bar in mind of like, okay, I'm waiting for this movie to get to this place. And it can it's, it's, it's all about expectations, right? We talk about this on our show all the time, expectations and how they impact our viewing of a movie. And so if you're watching this after the fact, um, 10 years later, and you're, you've got all of this history in mind, your expectations are much different than if you were to see it for the first time with fresh eyes and be blown away by it. Completely, totally different experiences. All right. Well, in the interest of time, we're going to try and keep this under the runtime of Titanic. Um, <laughs> this movie is way too big for us to walk through scene by scene. So I want to start with one, two, three main kind of topics that I want to go through. The first one is this. Does the film's unique structure work for you? We start with the treasure hunting Bill Paxton character. Then we have Jack and Rose's love story. Then we have the sinking of the ship. And then we ultimately have Rose's kind of final goodbye. So, Aaron, I'll ask you first. Why do you think this works or doesn't work? I think that the only person that could make a structure like this work as well as he did is James Cameron. Um, I personally wasn't very attached to Bill Paxton's character. Um, I thought that, you know, he was just, he was pretty much just a greedy treasure seeker trying to play it off like he was Indiana Jones for the ocean, you know, playing it off like he had this moral superiority to, to figure out the Titanic when really he was just in it for the giant diamond. <laughs> but, uh, at the very end though, there's a moment that I do really respect him for where after she's explained how all of this happened, he talks about how, you know, for years it was always about the Titanic, but until she watched him through everything that actually happened, he never really got it. And until that moment, I really wasn't sold on him as a character in general. But once that happened, it was like, okay, he, 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 he there's a rounding that's happening there. Um, but I love the fact, like I said, you know, in my one word takeaway, I love that they started with the actual you know, present day and then work their way backwards. And Patrick, it was really great that you talked about how strong that closing scene is where they take, they take you through the wreckage and then they superimpose as you're drifting through it, what the Titanic would have been like had it not sunk. And that's actually something that I commented today was one of my favorite parts of the entire movie. I love that rebuilding scene. Um, and I think that James Cameron did it in such a beautiful way where it wasn't like you just started with present day. She started to tell the story and then you ended because there are moments within her telling the story that it sucks you back out and takes you back into present day. And I think when it does that, it, it makes you realize as a watcher how invested you are in the story at that point. 
because you're like, oh my gosh, no, go back. Why, why would you, why would you take me out of this moment? Like, like it's about to get good. We all went out, we all know what's going to happen next. And I think the way that he did that was just, it was very, very specific. And I think that he did it in a way that made the flow feel like it wasn't like rudely interrupted by those, those moments. Yeah. I look at the way he structured it as a success as well. And I think it's because he wanted to pay homage to the ship as much as to the lives on the ship. I think he gave a lot of attention to detail because of how much he respected the ship. I mean, it's called Titanic after all. It wasn't called Jack and Rose. And having the movie begin and end with a present day kind of connection gave us as an audience a chance to connect with the ship and its mystery and its isolation, like where it's sitting. I mean, I almost felt a bit of like sadness at the fact that it's still down there. Like it is just year after year, just being eaten away at the darkness of the ocean. And that shot at the end, as we're going through this really just dark kind of exploratory shot and seeing how things start lightening up, it's almost like he's telling us the ship is still alive. Like the ship still has life and it still has value because of the stories that we can tell, not only about it, but about the people on it. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to that story of that old couple of that shot of them holding each other in the bed uh, and, and just how brutal that is, but how honest and how true that scene actually was, how that actually happened. And it makes you want to go, wow, everything we see here, did, did that really happen? Did that really happen? And I think that when you, you know, when it comes to something like a biopic, I think that's the big question we ask. Did that really happen? Whereas I think this is more of a historical narrative where we feel more confident in the major things that did happen. We attach them to characters and we attach them to people. And I think that when we start with, when we start with, it's a bold thing to start with a ship and end with the ship or in, and end with the couple, but have the ship kind of being the, the intertwined type of thing. I, I like Bill Paxton's character. I thought he was a great way to represent us. And it took me a minute to get into the past because I kind of wanted to stay on the ship with him. But I like the fact that, that we, every once in a while, we get that, we get that voiceover narrative of, of old Rose kind of connecting us back to, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're still in present day. We're, we're still watching this story play out. And, uh, and, and I like that actually. Yeah, it really works for me as well. I, I don't mind the structure at all. I think when I watched it this latest time, even being maybe a year or two removed from my previous viewing, I'm always a little bit surprised when it starts off and it's that present day kind of submersible. And maybe particularly this time, I think for me, Patrick, was because we had just covered the abyss a couple of weeks ago. And so here I am seeing James Cameron's, you know, cinematography utilizing a personal submersible and this robot arm and it felt like oh my gosh i'm watching you know this better more advanced version of the abyss and what i saw happen there and a couple things to kind of play off of what you guys said because i agree with everything um two things stuck out to me one the transitional shots are incredible you guys mentioned one of them um at the end of the film where we're going through Rose's memory of, you know, after she's tossed the heart of the ocean into the ocean. 
And um, we see the, the Titanic at the ocean floor and it transitions into you know, Leo essentially welcoming her. I like to believe she died. I think she died in her sleep, frankly, and that she's like going to the Titanic. But anyway, regardless, I love that transition. And it happens several times throughout the film. Um, there's more examples of that where w- one or two times we'll see like her eye. It'll be a scene of her eye and we'll zoom into it in the past and it will zoom out to an expression that she has in the present as she's telling the story. Like you said, Patrick, grounding us in a reminder that it's a story being retold. And I'm always like just emotionally invested in those moments. Like, I don't know, but those transitions are so well done. It's so seamless that you're, you're right, Aaron. Very few directors would be able to pull off the ability to weave this thing back and forth like that and not have it feel janky or clunky. Um, the other thing, one of the other things, I guess there's two more. One, one thing is about Jim's, uh, James Cameron's, you know, Bill Paxton character here. For me, I really have come to believe that this is James Cameron and that the reason the dialogue is what it is here and people complain about it. People say it's terrible and cheesy. I think it's on purpose. I think that Cameron is giving us a, a view of how people are going to perceive him because here he is, this treasure hunter exploring the Titanic, and he's focusing initially on this cool factor, as he says, of the ship sinking. It's it's really kind of heightened. You know, he has that great line, these windows are nine inches thick, and if they go, it's sayonara in two seconds. And he says, okay, enough of this BS. And so these jokes are here, but I think what he's showing us is himself and how, you know, he started off this journey very much like Bill Paxton's character going after the remains of the Titanic, because it would be cool to be in a personal submersible and actually find it and like the history of it. And in the process, I think he himself came to realize and respect this humanity, this factor. He says it at the end of the film. He says three years, I thought of nothing but Titanic, but I never got it. I never let it in. So I think his character is meant to frame a change in James Cameron himself as he was going through this whole process. Because initially, that's what he did. He set out to find the Titanic. It was not necessarily to make the movie. Um, that kind of came after. Um, so I, that's what I think about that, and that's that's part of why I don't mind it as much. Another thing that really stood out to me this time is what I would say a masterful decision by him that goes along with the structure, and the reason, the prime, one of the prison, primary reasons this film works so well is the geography of the Titanic. He spends time having us go through this Lois Bodine character hammering home the the animate. He shows us the crash animation and he hammers home this explanation of what had happened. He's telling Rose about how the Titanic sunk, which is a little bit of ironic and stuff all in of itself. Cause like, you know, she was there and we get to, venture and see the ship we see the outline of the ship we get to to learn like okay this is where the the aft is this is what the stern looked like here's how many compartments there were over the course of the film we have the designers explaining what different pieces of the ship do and where the rooms are and then throughout the first hour and a half of the film we visit all of these places so we see the ballroom we see the bridge of the ship where the captain is we see the engine rooms we see the lower class berthing areas where all of all of the um, passengers are, you know, not 
very living very you know nicely we see the fancy and the rich sections of the ship so we get to go through all of these places the boiler rooms and i think that because of that later in the film when it starts to go down we have this understanding of all of these places that really hammer like we are connected to this ship and in so many other movies i think we would have just seen the outside of the titanic and it would have been focused on like Oh, here's this big vessel. It's gigantic in size. That's all you need to know. But instead, we get to know the intimate internal sections. So when those pieces of the ship are flooding, we have more of a connection to them. I actually wanted to read this real quick from Ebert's review because he noted something very similar, actually. He says this. He said, we understand exactly what is happening at that moment because of an ingenious story technique by Cameron who frames and explains the entire voyage in a modern story. The opening shots of the real Titanic, we are told are obtained during an expedition led by the Bill Paxton character, an undersea explorer. He seeks precious jewels, but finds a nude drawing of a young girl. Meanwhile, an ancient woman sees the drawing on TV and recognizes herself. This is Rose still alive at 101. She visits him. She shares her memories and he shows her video scenes from his explorations, including that computer simulation, which doubles as, again, like I mentioned, our briefing for the audience of what actually took place. By the time the ship sinks, we already know what is happening and why, and the story can focus on the characters while we effortlessly follow the stages of the Titanic sinking. It's just, I, I think it's amazing, and um, I thought it was great that, that he pointed out kind of that as well. The next section really is the love story. I guess I, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about this. And I'm really curious how this worked for you. Patrick, you mentioned just a few minutes ago that, you know, you were kind of hit or miss with it. It was here and here or there. So, Aaron, I'll ask you first. What were your favorite parts of the romance? Favorite scenes? Favorite characters that interact with Jack and Rose? And then I'm actually really curious if you... We're able to compare your initial feelings for this romance when you saw it for the first time versus maybe how you see it now through older and more mature eyes. Sure. Um, I mean, I can't, I'll have to think on the, the latter just because I, the more that I thought about it, uh, while we were going through these notes, the more I realized when I was a kid, I really was far, like far more attached to the historical parts of this movie than I was to the romance. Um, but still to this day, I mean, my favorite is the way Jack teaches Rose and the way that he's able to bring out parts of her that she hasn't been able to release before. You know, Patrick talked about how freedom is such an important concept for this film. And I feel like that a lot of Rose's freedom comes from Jack realizing that she doesn't have to be who her mother and upper class society is making her feel like she is. So, I mean, I personally love the scene where he's teaching her how to hawk a loogie on the side of the boat. Um, I know that seems weird and that seems gross, um, but it, it's just, it's small. I, I find pleasure in those tinier moments. Um, and one of my favorite things that happened because of those tiny moments was when Rose is trying to find help for Jack because he's been uh, handcuffed to that pole in Masters of Arms. And um, one of the shipmen comes through and he's trying to pretty much drag her off and is writing her off that she's just hysterical over what's happening. And she's trying to tell him, no, somebody is back here and they're trapped like he needs help. I'm trying to have you know, you're going the wrong way. And he's like, yes, yes, ma'am, we'll get you to the top of the boat. You'll be fine. We'll find the man. And she just literally just she goes, no, you're not listening to me. And she just socks him right in the face. 
And if the same event had happened with the Titanic hitting the iceberg, but she had never met Jack, I can guarantee that that those kinds of situations wouldn't have happened. And it's the little ways that he's influenced her. And that's kind of how I I approach romance in movies and in life is can you see the little subtleties that that's what builds romance, that's what builds love, that's what builds affection. So small moments are what I take away from my favorite moments for Rose and Jack. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest criticisms that the love story gets is the fact, um, (laughs) in fact, how it should have ended, which is one of my favorite web series on the web, is this idea that the romance happens over the course of like two days and it's unrealistic. But the fact is Cameron gives us opportunities to not only fall in love with these characters as an audience, but justify kind of the vulnerability that Rose has in being changed. Like she was, she wanted to break out of where she was from the very beginning. We see even as she leaves that, that vehicle and they're about to get on the ship, you can tell she just is not excited about where she is, culturally speaking. I mean, she's marveling at the grandiosity of the Titanic, but I mean, Billy Zane's character really acts as a nice foil for her to be like, this is the life you're going to have, whether you want it or not. And so the moments that we have with, with Jack you know, teaching her, as you mentioned, Aaron, are not only entertaining but they're also educational because we then believe that this is a part of who she is uh one of my favorite scenes that was actually almost my connecting point is the whole sequence downstairs with the third class folks when they're having that amazing dance party just get together or whatever and what i notice in that is is just how much she opens up so i think that there are pockets of moments where she doesn't fall in love with Jack because not just because he's he's different from from Billy Zane's character, but because he shows her that there is a life outside of what she's being told she's going to have. And the impact of that is enough where she makes the decisions that she makes on board Titanic during the disaster. I think personally, if she hadn't met Jack, there are other elements of and choices that she made that she wouldn't have made made otherwise, not just for him, but for other people. Like I think she learned in those two days, 48, 72 hours, what it meant to be alive and what it meant to really live as a human being and to value life as a whole, not just as a romantic partner for Jack. Totally completely agree with that. Um, you know, I love that you guys mentioned the spitting scene, or you did, Aaron. Uh, it's one of my favorite moments as well, because I, actually, I hate spitting like that, and it, and it makes me cringe when I hear people like hawking the loogie <laughs> like they do in this film. It's so gross. It's just so gross. But it's so realistic, because it felt like that's the kind of natural thing you would teach someone that had never experienced it. And we also get a great hilarious moment from Kathy Bates's awesome unsinkable Molly Brown, where, you know, she's like touching her chin to show Jack that he's got some still there on his, uh, on his face. And I, I love that she's always looking out for him, right? Um, I, I think her character is great because she gives us a little bit of a, an understanding that not everybody in the upper class is awful because we see the, the fiance Cal who's just, the worst of the worst. And then we see Rose's mother, Ruth, 
who at one point is like angry because there's not enough space in the boat for her to be comfortable. I mean, it's disgusting, right? And so when you see Molly Brown, who is, I think, a different kind of money, there's a, a less entitled type of act attitude to her. She's a great comparison to them because we don't that way we realize like, OK, you know, money does not necessarily equal being a jerk. Um, it's about a personal attitude as well. And maybe how you became you know, rich has something to do with how you grew up or grew into that. Some of my favorite stuff with them is uh, definitely the scene where he says, you jump, I jump. Remember? Um, I mean, I can't help it. There's so many like teary moments in this film <laughs> that it's just, it's crazy because it, it calls back to that, that moment where he saves her quote unquote, saves her from her suicide, which by the way, I'm actually curious. I don't think this is how you're supposed to deal with suicidal folks is to tell them that you don't think they'll do it. I'm pretty sure that that's like one of the, the number one things you don't say to somebody who says they're about to jump off the front of the ship. Um, so it might be sweet, but I, yeah, not, not a good thing to mimic. Um, but he calls back to that later and he says, you jump, I jump, remember? And I love the conversation they have because he explains to her that he knows how the world works and he knows how hard it would be for them to be together. He's not got this starry eyed, you know, fake understanding. He, he gets it, but he tells her, he says, I don't want to see your fire go out. And she she makes this real kind of crass comment to him about how, like, he can't save her. And he says, I know that only you can save yourself from this life that you're in. And then when she ends up coming back for him and she says, hello, Jack, I changed my mind. And of course, you know, cue the my heart will go on music, which is played over and over throughout this film. I can't I get teary all the freaking time. Like I I try to actively watch this movie and not cry and it just doesn't work. It's it's. It's like ingrained in the filmmaking to force it out of you, that emotion. So I love that moment. Um, I also, I, I kind of noticed something. I'm curious if you guys will agree with me or not about the nude drawing scene. Two things stuck out to me here. One is that I think that Cameron is really using this moment to hammer home just how different Jack is because the typical response to seeing a beautiful woman or beautiful man, you know, in the nude in a movie would be for the viewer to focus in on that, right? And to be drawn to that sight that they're not used to seeing. But here, he, I think he knows that. He knows that that's what audiences would be looking for. But they spe he specifically shows us Jack's eyes never lingering on that part of her body. You know, he's immediately drawing her hands, which he's mentioned before are most important to him. And I don't know, for some reason, it really felt impactful to me this time. Like just how much Jack is not noticing that she's naked. Like it's not part of the deal for him because he's seeing her differently. You know, he's not getting wrapped up in, in that, in the sexuality of, of that aspect. He wants to draw her as a whole person because he sees her beautiful as that kind of beautiful. Um, and I think that's a great example of like how real love operates, right? And it's just different than, than most movies would handle that scene. Well, Rose well, puts, go ahead, go ahead. Aaron. Oh, sorry. Um, I think it's also really important to note that it's 
it part of the reason why they had this connection is their connection over art. You know, there's that hilarious scene about her love of Monet and how her fiance thinks that he's a trash artist and he won't amount to anything. Um, and she's got these like priceless, amazing Monet paintings in her, um, in her suite. But I think what's really important about it is that he focuses on the art and not the sexuality and that the, the human body is not inadvertently sexual. We, especially specifically in America, have made it that way. That the fact that she is standing there naked is embarrassing, but not for the overt sexual aspect. It's embarrassing because she has not had another man see her naked before. And so there's this beautiful moment also that I, I absolutely love where, you know, you talk about Jack doesn't linger or, you know, he isn't taken over by it. But there is a moment of that. And I actually think that that's what humanizes it even more is that when she first drops the robe, he like takes it all in, gulps and starts to like blush a little bit. And then he's like, um, yeah, go, go lay on the bed. I mean, the, the couch. Like it's not, it's not gone from his mind, but it's not what he's there to do. It's not what he's there to focus on. And I think that that's a beautiful human moment where she's also incredibly nervous because she's talking, you know, throughout this whole thing. And she's like, I think that you're, you're blushing, Mr. Artiste. And he's like, stop, relax your face. I'm trying to do my job. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful moment where she's very obviously uncomfortable and nervous, but she did this for a reason. And what comes out of it is this beautiful moment, but also a beautiful piece of art. Yeah. There is after he, I think my favorite shot of that whole thing is just after he finishes and she's around him and she's leaning over, I think over his shoulder, looking at the finished product and they're both smiling at it. Not because he drew something, you know, overly sexualized, but because it really was, I think, she, I think she knew that he was an artist and she knew that he was good, but to see him draw her and to be delicate in the way in which he drew her, because I, I also love the fact that we get those close up shots of the, of the pencil drawing itself. Like we get that almost like that sculpting of, of her body on paper, but I love the fact that she leans over his shoulder and she's seeing it and they're both just incredibly satisfied at the finished product and how he just kind of rubs it a little bit of the way, getting some of the debris off. And then he closes it up like here, this is yours. I made this for you. And I don't know why I like that so much in the fact that I feel like when he closed that up, of course we know what's going to happen to it. We know how it ends up that it's preserved in this little binder thing and it's preserved and that binder is preserved in the safe, but it's not just a scribbled sketch that he says, well, here you go. Here's a piece of paper that you can roll up or fold up. I mean, he puts it in some place that's going to be, you know, preserved. It's going to be incredibly, um, taken care of. And I think that says a lot about obviously their relationship, how deeply he cares for her. But equally as much, it says about how much he cares for his craft, how much of his artistry is a part of who he is. That defines who he is. He's not just a person who draws women or draws people. He's an artist. And there's something significantly different about someone who draws versus an artist. And that whole scene, I think, articulates that in, a, in an incredible way with his sense of professionalism, uh, you know, balanced with his sense of kind of awe at her amazingly beautiful body but he doesn't let that overtake the fact that this is still who he is yeah 
Agreed completely. And I think it, yeah, like you said, it's, it's about a level of detail too when it comes to this art. And I think it is another piece of where Cameron kind of shows his own level of detail because if you guys didn't notice, but Rose is wearing a ton of jewelry when we see her at the end of the film. And early in this, when Leo is introducing his drawings to Rose for the first time, they're flipping through them. And they get to the one of the, the what's what we find out later is a one-legged naked, you know, French prostitute. And or I'm sorry, before that one, but before that one, we we see this woman and she's sitting at a bar. And Leo tells her, he says, she used to sit at this bar every night wearing every piece of jewelry she owned, just waiting for her love to return. And I just see so much detail throughout this movie and throughout all of Cameron's filmography. Really, is something that we've been picking up that. That calls back to Rose at the end of the film when we see her as this old woman wearing all of this jewelry. And you just, it's not specifically stated. Rose doesn't come out with exposition and have this big speech where she says, Oh, yes, I'm run, I remember when I told you that there was that woman that he drew that did this back in France. Well, I'm doing the same thing, but we're, we're able to pick up on that as an audience and understand that that, that may be where she got that from. Maybe she's subconsciously doing the same thing, waiting for her love to return. All right, well, after that happens, down goes the ship. <laughs> the disaster sequence comes, and the film totally takes a major turn, and it, it's just this stunning thriller all to itself. And I found this interesting. I checked the timestamps on the movie playing this time around, and you might find it interesting as well. From the point that they hit the iceberg to the ship getting where it is nose down and straight up and down sinking is literally an hour of real time. Just like the designer said the ship would sink in an hour. And uh, again, we go back to that detail by James Cameron. I do not believe that's an accident, but it does take us a long time. It's, it's a minute or I'm sorry, an hour and 38 minutes into this film before we actually see the iceberg. That's a long time for a movie that's all about, the ship sinking when it hits the iceberg. So I'm curious, what stands out to you most about this next second half of the film where the ship is sinking and primarily how does it affect you emotionally? And Aaron, kick us off. Um, this is obviously going to be one of the more emotional moments of the movie. And I think the hardest part for me is that it's a, a look into human nature in my personal opinion, I believe that humans are innately selfish beings. It's it's 100% human nature to seek self-preservation. Whether or not you act on it is something completely different, but that desire for self-preservation will always be there. And there are a few moments that are really just heart-wrenching. You know, uh, Petter talked about, you know, the two uh, older people that are, you know, curled up in bed next to each other, and he just softly kisses her as the water pours into the room. Um, that is heartbreaking because it's actually been proven that that is based off of truth. Um, for me, there's the moment where the Irish mother is tucking her two kids into bed and reading them a story. Um, and we all know what is happening in the background. Um, but there's also a moment where um, you're seeing the ship as it starts to tip in and as like it starts to crack and people are falling um down the ship as you know i mean it's gravity you can only fight it so much but there's a moment where rose before the ship had gotten to this point had looked over to her side and there was a woman 
uh, a blonde hair woman who was just crying. She very obviously was very, very scared. Um, and in the moment where the ship starts to crack, Rose and Jack climb onto the other side of the railing so that they can fight against gravity so that they don't have to worry about being pulled down. And there's a moment where Rose looks back over to that same woman, and that woman is very clearly clinging to dear life on this railing, fighting against gravity, and Rose just sits there and makes eye contact with her. And it's like a really awkward, like, eight seconds where she just literally watches her, does not move to help her in any way, and the woman just falls. She slips off the railing. And there are just moments, I think, after it hits the iceberg that the real depth of human nature is shown, and the fact that she makes a very clear point to say over 1,500 people went into the ocean when the Titanic sank. There were over 20 lifeboats nearby, and only one returned. Out of that 1,500 people, only six were found still alive. And there's like this huge weight in that moment where you just, you think, 20 lifeboats. 20 lifeboats that saw everything happen and decided, if we go back, we'll never make it out. So we'll just chill here. There's there's this huge weight that that Cameron does by by showing the one lifeboat that goes back, but also even just the ship that had the the lifeboat that had uh, Rose's mother and the unsinkable Molly Brown on it, and the fact that Molly Brown was literally the only person that was like, I don't understand you people. Those are your men out there. Like, how can you just sit here and not want to do anything? And for Rose's mother, who freaked out when Rose refused to get into the boat, she just sits there silently. She doesn't make a single move to potentially go find her child. And it's 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 this heart-wrenching moment where you realize, like, is this, you have to question yourself. You know, everybody can say, in this moment, I would do X, Y, and Z, but none of us really actually know. None of us have been confronted with moments like that. And to me, the depth of human nature is really portrayed in this last hour in the movie. Yeah, there were there were a couple of significant moments for me that were pretty heartbreaking and they were kind of juxtaposed against each other. The thing that really was heartbreaking for me was you have Victor Garber's character, Thomas Andrews as, as Rose and Jack are running through the dining room and he's just looking at the, he's in front of the fireplace. I think he's just looking at the clock and they're like, you need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. But you know, in that moment that he has just decided to stay with the ship and he apologizes to Rose. He says, I'm so sorry. You were right. I'm so sorry that, this is happening. The ownership that he takes of the the overall like construction of the ship juxtaposed against the other guy who ends up getting on one of the lifeboats and he's just turned away from from one of the the officers who's getting people on the boat and they kind of make eye contact at one point. You see, uh, like you mentioned, Aaron, you see kind of the choices that people are making in those moments. And how oh, that some... was uh, Joseph Ismay, I think his name is. Okay, okay. And you see these two characters who are both significantly involved in the construction and the building and the creation of the ship and how they're both reacting to it. One is literally abandoning ship to save himself, to live longer, where another is owning up to the mistakes and to the flaws of what the ship is really living out in its sinking. And... I, I felt for Victor Garber's character because I think he wanted to see this ship succeed, not only to show the world how great this amazing ship was, but to to justify and to validate 
who he was as a as a as a constructor as a designer and the fact that he stayed behind where he could have i mean he's an important guy he could have been in those lifeboats of course you know he wasn't a uh, he wasn't a woman or a child but he was significant enough that i think he would have um been able to get on the ship the fact that he wasn't even on the deck near the boats he had just said i'm going to go down with the ship and i don't think it was because of pride i think it was because of just completely owning that it was almost like he was asking for forgiveness like this was his penance for the flaws of the ship and for not making the appropriate changes to the ship that he felt like needed to be changed and you juxtapose that against this other guy who cared nothing but him for himself and how he had to look away from this officer um as he was being lowered i mean it's it just says so much without saying anything at all yeah, I, I love that you bring that up because they are, you know, I don't remember who's the designer and what the other guy is. Andrews is definitely Victor Garber's character. Um, I love the moment where early on someone is challenging him and he says, but Titanic can't sink. And he says, she's made of iron, sir. I assure you she can. It's a mathematical certainty. And it's like really hardcore because in that moment you realize um, what you quoted, Aaron, that that staggering amount of numbers that literally half of these people could not have been saved, could not have fit into a lifeboat. And it's, it's really staggering to consider because the death, so much of the death occurred completely out of everyone's control versus the death that happened because of human refusal to go back and risk their own lives. So the crowded boats thing really stuck out to me as well and, and impacted me. Because we see two boats make the decision to move folks from one to another so that they had an empty boat to go back and try to find survivors. So we know that that could have been done with other boats, and yet they choose not to. It is really, really both interesting, but also incredibly tragic to see the human condition play out like that and understand that it's very realistic. Like like you said, we don't know how we would react, but what we see in the Titanic Sinking sequence is so many different people making decisions differently. We see the people that accept it and go down with the ship because they feel responsible, like Andrews, or like Officer Murdoch, who is very, is such a sad story. You know, he understands he's trying to load these boats. He knows that they're being launched half full. Um, and yet here he is trying to protect this. Um, this, this level of control that they have and only putting women and children in the, in the boats. And he ends up shooting Tommy and then immediately realizes like, my God, like this is the level that it's come to. And he just kills himself because he feels responsible for having murdered Tommy. Like, and the, he realizes there's no getting out of this at this point. And so you see all of these people and how they deal with it differently. And it makes you consider, I think, what you would do. Like, how would you go down with the ship? And having been out on a ship many times uh, on deployments, this is a very scary thing. There are scenes where you see people trapped behind gates and doors um, and others trying to close them off to stop the flooding. That's something that we had to learn and we had to understand was a very real possibility because in order to save a ship, that's what you do. You block off compartments so that the flooding can't get into a new one. And if there are people in that compartment, oh, well, 
that sucks. Those are people you know, your friends, your coworkers. Um, so it's really powerful to watch this happen for me. Um, gosh, I just, it's, it's so crazy because you, you see the people who dress up and have a drink to just go out thinking, you know, this is the best. I want to use my last moments the best that I can because you accept the inevitability that is coming. Um, or, you know, do you run and try to get into one of the boats? Like there's just, there's so many aspects here to it. I, I love that we get to see all of them versus just one type of response right. to death. Yeah. I, I, I watched this whole sequence play out and in a lot of ways, it reminds me a lot of, of the abyss, not because it's just a, a water based movie, but the fact that there's a confinement here and People have got to make choices about what they're going to do. And I like the fact that just like the rest of the movie, Cameron gives us as an audience room to breathe to experience the entire gamut of those expressions. That it's not just every man for himself. That there are people out there in the world and in particularly on the ship who embrace the inevitability of what's happening to them. And I love the fact that we get, um, going back to that, the, the, the cuddling couple, as they're called, those were first class citizens. These were not third class people. And how a disaster in and of itself can, le- can level any kind of class that it's not first class people who are trying to save their own lives. And it's not third class people who are sacrificing for for others that when it comes to a disaster, we are all humans at the very least. We are not first class people. We are not Americans. We are not this or that. We are people and the human element levels the playing field completely. And I think that Cameron does this really well to give us that full variety of what it means to be human, not what it means. Go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. Um, I was going to say, like, I think I will actually probably disagree with you a little on that. Okay. Only because you still see a lot of classism in this disaster moments. Like, they are literally locking in third class passengers while they get first class people situated on boats before they even unlock it. And he pulls a gun on them to keep them from breaking through that gate. No, I agree with that. But I'm saying as 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 third class citizens and first class citizens, like, as a whole, these people were being driven by individuals, yes, mm-hmm. that it still existed. But I think when it came down to it, you had human beings that were on either side that d- weren't de- that weren't depicted in a way that we expected. Like I saw there were third class citizens that were fighting to to get up. I think and and first class citizens that were giving up their their place on the boat or their they they were relegated to saying we will we know we're not going to live, so we're not going to try to fight. I, I definitely agree that it was still very much there. I didn't think it was absent, but I think it was specifically on individuals who were directing a lot of that traffic. It wasn't just a, it wasn't a sweeping, like all first class citizens were being altruistic and all third class citizens were not, or vice versa. There was this mix and match. Well, and I think it also becomes far more apparent as the disaster rises. I think that the very, maybe first 20 minutes or so of the disaster, it's very separated. Um, it's also, I believe it's also a ploy to keep chaos from erupting. 
Um, but you notice that as things get more and more dire, like even that moment where Hawk Lee has bribed that uh, first officer, he throws that money back in his face. He's like, he's like, your money can't save you any more than right. I can. Like, right. The, the, your money is no good here. I'm literally just trying to save as many people as possible. It does not matter. You can't do anything. Exactly. And then that regret, obviously, on his face, like Aaron talked about when he shoots Tommy, it's just there. He doesn't think like, oh, I've just because moments before he shot another third class passenger that was climbing the ropes. But then he realized he accidentally shot a human like it wasn't it, it wasn't a conscious choice, regardless of class. Like he accidentally shot this person who was just who got pushed into the wrong direction. So I do think that class does still play into these moments because again, half of those lifeboats were being put off onto the water when they weren't even a third, a third of the way a full so that those first class passengers could be comfortable. And the guy is like awkwardly sweating whenever he's like, Oh, I'm sorry. Like, I guess I'll fill these ones up now. Like my bad. And it's just, I think that there, there are still moments of classism until people realize, oh, wait, we're all going to die and it's not going to matter mm-hmm. who was a first class passenger and who was a third class passenger. Yeah, and I think that the, point. I think that as the stakes height, like heighten in intensity, that's when people realize like, oh, we are all human and we're all going to die. And I think Molly Brown really articulates that pretty well because she's clearly a first class citizen and embraces that. Mm-hmm. But she, she embraces the humanity of living and, and her conversation and her interaction with Jack, I think is one of those things that bridges the conflict of a class system. She's a first class citizen who is giving value to Jack, knowing that he's a human being first and foremost. And that, I think that's what makes her appealing because she's such a, such, she's such a contrast to the world she lives in. And I don't know historically if that's who she was. I imagine that was. But I, I think that's why I like her character quite a bit because she so obviously goes against the grain, but she goes against it so justifiably that it's sort of exclamation pointed at the end where she's like, as you mentioned, Aaron, she's saying, why are you guys not going back? These are people. Go get them. What's going on? I mean, because she clearly cares equally as much about the value of people much more so than where they come from. Yeah, and I think but I think the biggest thing about Molly Brown and the reason we fall in love with her for that realistic aspect has a lot to do with the fact that she didn't come from money. Yes. So like the whole thing about unsinkable Molly Brown is that she was born to Irish uh immigrant parents in America. Um and this is I'm pulling from the like the historical knowledge that I actually know of like the person, not necessarily her portrayal in the film. But the reason why she's so down to earth with people like Jack is because she didn't come from money. She married for love, even though I think one of the famous quotes is that she's like, I wanted to marry a wealthy man, but I settled for him because I loved him. And she fell in love with this man. And then all of a sudden, the Brown family, I think they um there was a like a mining boom. And they were one of the people that benefited from that. So the reason why she also never fits in with those women and never really truly is accepted into high class society is because she didn't come from money. She wasn't raised with the, the proper etiquette and the proper tools. So she, it's almost like they they, ta- they show in a way how being an elite member of society can burn some of that humanity out of you and how the unsinkable Molly Brown refused to let that part of her go. And that's why I love that moment on the boat where she's like, I don't understand a single one of you right now. Like. I don't yeah. want to be a part of this society. Like, if this is the future you want to create, I don't want to be a part of it. And I love that moment. Yeah, me too. Yeah, well, me three, because we need people to do that. People mm-hmm. from within that class can influence that class. People from outside of it are not going to. 
but she, as being a member of it, has the ability to speak to them about that. And I love this. She is so forceful calling it out. Well, one of Titanic's record-tying 11 Oscar wins, um, and that's tied with Ben-Hur and Lord of the Rings Return of the King. But one of those was for original, best original song, which is the James Horner, Will Jennings mega hit, My Heart Will Go On, sung by Celine Dion. One fun story is that both Cameron and Dion hated this song. <laughs> he didn't want to end his film with a pop song. He was adamantly against it. And Horner actually went and composed this song without his approval and without his knowledge. And Celine Dion didn't like it and just wanted to get it over with and be done. Um, Cameron actually originally wanted the whole film to be scored by Inya and couldn't do that, ended up with Horner instead. I guess that worked out. So they both ultimately trusted Horner, and lo and behold, it becomes a global anthem and probably Celine Dion's most recognized song. But fans are definitely split on this song. Um, many love it, and many claim to hate it. It shows up constantly throughout the film, um, especially in its instrumental form. Uh, and for me, I will say that it's definitely an emotional... Um, it it, ha it sparks something in me every time I hear it. But I'm wondering, to start off, like, Aaron, where does this song land for you? Does it work hate or it. not? Hate it, hate <laughs> it, hate it, hate it. Um, okay, so it is it is like a lot of music on the radio today where you better believe when that comes on, if I'm alone in the car together, I will belt every single riff and lick. I will become Celine Dion. I will even do the Celine Dion hand gestures while I'm driving in the car. However, the song in and of itself, in my opinion, is it's, it still sounds like an Enya song without Enya, and that's that's slightly disappointing to my, my soul. But it's just the song overall is just really cheesy. And in my opinion, like the instrumental side of it works for the film. But lyrically, I don't think it, it places well with the rest of the tone of the movie. Yeah, the <laughs> <laughs> ditto, except for the part where I belt it out in the car, because I, I wouldn't do that either. Liar. But, I, but I, <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, the, the song itself, I think, is reacted to the same way I think the movie is these days, where the overexposure of it and the amount of play that it got on top 40 tended to give it kind of this, all right, we get it. Your heart will go on, leave it, leave it alone. But I, I definitely think that it works a lot better instrumentally. Like when it came, when the song actually got lyricized at the end and the end credits, I was like, Oh, that's okay. I guess that's fine. And I found that of the things that I pulled away from Titanic as a movie, the thing that I liked the most about it uh, from the first time I saw it until now has always been the soundtrack or the score, but the score absent of Celine Dion's lyrical performance of the song, because I feel like there's enough power and enough variety behind that tune that it, it tends to get taken away from when you add lyrics to it. It's almost like green sleeves. What, that became what child is this like it's mm -hmm. a great instrumental by itself but it's almost like you're adding to something that's already kind of perfect and already telling that story without adding lyrics to it and you're almost kind of doing a cash grab at that point and celine dion's voice is amazing but i feel like it's a bit too powerful for a song like that because of the way that it was used throughout the movie like it's a very tender song 
and the way she belts it out lyrically kind of takes away from that for me. Hmm. hmm okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> Aaron, I, I think you would agree on all fronts. Um, yeah. Maybe we not can move so on. Let's move on. <laughs> I mean, I agree with Aaron. I belt it out when I'm alone in my car completely with the hand movements and everything. Um, I, I, I get what you guys are saying. Clearly, I understand that. And I know that that is very likely the reason for the dislike of it now, both what you were saying, Patrick, about kind of just how much of a power ballad it is. And then all, you know, the overhype and the overplay of anything tends to come back and bite media in its butt. Um, once something has become so, such a cultural force. But it works for me. It works on every level. It works instrumentally. Again, I cried. I texted you during the movie, Patrick, and I was like, why are we doing this? Like, this is destroying me. I also have that very personal connection to this film, as I mentioned, you know, seeing it for the first time with you know, my first wife and when I was going off to the Navy and all those things. So the song felt like it was my song. It was our song. Um, I'm sure many people had this as their song. Um, and so for that reason, it just holds a very special place in my heart. I, I enjoy power ballads like this that bring out emotion in me. And so objectively, I can knock the lyrics and down and I can say I think that maybe a pop song ending this film doesn't make a lot of sense, just like Cameron thought. But the heart in me is impacted by it instantaneously the moment that I hear any single beat from this song. And so I can't help it. I love it. Um, and you can put me in that category and I'll just be there happily alone singing to myself. <laughs> All right. Well, um, before we move on to connecting points, just real quick, is there anything anybody else wanted to mention? Did I miss anything? Did we miss anything? Yes. No. Patrick shaking his head. I can't see Aaron, so I'm going to assume nothing else. <laughs> connecting point time then. Um, of all the moments in this film, I'm sure that we could have each selected a handful uh, of moments that really impacted us emotionally. But to kind of nail it down to the one that we want to talk about or the one that had the biggest impact. Um, Aaron, why don't you share yours with us first? Sure. There were a lot of moments, obviously, you know, we, we've grazed over some of them. And I know, Patrick, you actually mentioned what I put down as my, uh, my connecting moment. And it's, it's the moment at the, uh, party below deck um so there's this moment that feels like a breath of fresh air considering the fact that we all know what tragedy is about to happen i feel like james cameron specifically created this opportunity for rose to show her vulnerability and to know that someone like jack would be willing and able to accept it with open arms unlike her current fiance hockley who literally just wants to package her up he wants her to be this perfect little wife that just sits on his arm silently and does absolutely nothing. Jack is able to see Rose as more than just a first class girl. You know, he envisioned her as this beautiful woman that he just saw across the, the bow of the ship. But that moment where she's just chugging a beer and she's like, what, you don't think a first class girl can drink? It's just like it's this light, playful moment between the two of them. And she's this bright, vibrant woman who's trying to flourish despite society stifling her. There are, you know, everybody's dancing, there's Irish music, there's plenty of drinks to go around, people are arm wrestling, it's it's a night of frivolity, and I think that she finds a part of her spirit with these people that she hasn't been able to breathe in before, and Jack is able to, you know, 
break the shackles of upper class society that bind her down and she can take it all in and truly like exhale for the first time as Rose. And she has this amazing monologue before she even meets Jack about how she feels like her life is just moving at this incredible speed and she has no say in what happens to her and everything is predetermined and she could see everything that's going to happen in the future and none of it has meaning. And this moment below deck allows her to release this expectation with a man like Jack that even though she hardly knows him, she, he gets to see her in this this amazing light and he gets to experience the most intimate part of her soul that she knew was there but was never actually able to experience. And I love watching these these seemingly third class or lower class passengers that are later referred to as nothing more than steerage and they're so full of light and it 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 makes those the moments that follow the tragedy it makes that even more impactful yeah absolutely the thing that i pulled away from that was not only that vulnerability that gets gets put on full display but the fact that they don't care who she is I mean, the, she is not a first class citizen to them. She is a member of that party and that it gives them life. It gives them value. They're not just steerage. They are actual people who they may not be living in the big quarters. They may have their own little area, but they still have that kind of value and that their place on the ship doesn't define their place in life, that they can still have the, it, it's interesting that the lower class you get, the more, I guess, vivid a life, the more, um, what's the word? The, the less, the less kind of uptightness you see that they all let loose. They all don't, no, nobody cares that the other person next to them can't really dance that well. They're just out to have a good time. And for an audience, I think that's where most of us want to be. I mean, we don't want to be in the big stateroom stuffed up and being tightened up by corsets and things like that. We want to be down there drinking beer and arm wrestling and doing all this stuff that that's living right there. At least that's how I think Cameron articulates that is that that's, that's what it means to really live is that's unashamed dancing and partying and just having a great time. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Love that scene so much. And I think the movie would be a lot lesser if it wasn't in there because it definitely shows that Rose enjoys and can fit in in Jack's world, like that that's somewhere she wants to be. It's not just this fantasy anymore where it's like she, she's thinking about how cool it could be. No, she's experienced it and she still wants to choose it. And so there's, you know, a level of kind of agency there that it gives um, to her wanting to be part of that world. Um, all right, Patrick, what about you? What's your connecting point? Well, I, I chose Rose leaving the lifeboat to go back to Jack and, I mentioned earlier that there's a lot in this movie that could feel like tropes and maybe it's because this movie defined those tropes that they've been, they've been done before and they'll continue to be done. But it, it, it is expected because it's an absurd thing to think that Rose would just ditch the man she's fallen in love with. I mean, this is their story and you know, for her to leave, it would be really interesting to see if she stayed in the boat, what would happen there with him. But obviously we wouldn't get what we got later with the, the nice um, wooden door scene later on. But by, and by staying in the boat, she would pretty much guarantee her freedom. But the fact is she chose to essentially go back to confinement, um, not knowing what was going to happen and probably expecting the worst. I mean, at this point, you're not going to be saved. If you're not in a boat, 
you're probably not going to be safe. But the truth is to her, being with Jack and being exposed to a glimpse of a life untethered by what was expected and predictable and with a man who challenged it was really that freedom that I mentioned earlier in my one word takeaway. It's a bit ironic that she wanted to experience the freedom by being with a man knowing that they were probably not going to survive, that it was it was pretty much inevitable and that if they did, it would be a miracle. And Jack says, Rose, you're so stupid. Why'd you do that? You're so stupid. Why did you do that? Why? And of course, I'm butchering the line because what makes it great is that he is just holding her and kissing her and embracing her in a way that's you could tell he he's glad that she's back. But at the same time, he's he's torn because of the fact that she is now choosing to die with him, potentially. And he's he's being honest, he's like you're so stupid. And she is. She's incredibly stupid for leaving. But that's not the life that she would want if she weren't with him. If she had chose, chosen to leave him voluntarily, she would have lived with a life of regret, knowing that more than likely she wouldn't have gotten back with Cal. That was probably not going to happen. But she would not have been able to reconcile the idea of being of choosing to be without Jack. If she was going to be without him, it was going to be because something had to have happened. And she responds, you, you mentioned it earlier, Anne. She said, you jump, I jump, right? I couldn't go. I couldn't go. And I believe that. And that's one of the most meaningful moments from the romantic side of the story for me is that I really did believe when she said, I couldn't go. I couldn't. You know, it was her choice, but to her it wasn't. It was a clear, it was probably the most clear thing that she saw was that she had to be with him. And I think it defined their relationship in that short period of time and how valuable they were to each other is that being without each other was worse than living without one another. Yeah, I don't know that anybody doesn't get emotional in that moment. Um, it is definitely powerful. And I, I love that. You're, you're so right. Um, I mean, I think the I jump, you jump whole concept of those lines that get repeated multiple times in this film are, are probably one of the most memorable pieces of dialogue for everybody. And this is the reason, because it's impactful. Well, for my connecting point, um, it's a little bit of a small moment, really. And it's weird. I, I almost feel strange not picking something Rose and Jack related here because it's like their story. But it's also the story of the Titanic. And it's the story of everybody and these 1500 people that lost their lives. And so the thing that stood out the most to me and really just hit me in the heart hard was this band, this, this group of musicians playing. And we see them initially when the ship starts to become chaos, when things are kind of going crazy and boats start to get loaded. And their leader, I guess, he says, you know, start by playing something nice and cheery. And so they play this song called Wedding Dance. And they're keeping the spirits up, essentially. They're, there's this chaos all around them, and yet they're playing this lively tune as if nothing was happening. They're just entertaining folks. And then later we get to see them break up and start to go their separate ways, obviously probably to go load into the ship's boats. Um, they're definitely 
you know, paid musicians. They're part of the entertainment. And it looks like they would be able to get a spot in one of those boats, in my opinion. And one of them starts to play again. And, and you just see them all turn and there's no words spoken. And that's one of the things I really loved about this moment is they don't sit and have a big conversation and talk about what it means. They just all recognize that and they know and they come back together and they start playing again. And the song they play is pretty impactful. Um, they play near my God to thee. And there are reports that, you know, conflict a little bit, but that's one of the two songs that people truly believe may have been played, which would make a lot of sense, just lyrically speaking, um, for what is happening in this moment. And it's such a powerful scene to me, both because of their act and what they're choosing to do, um, in, denying themselves the chance to say to be saved but a montage plays here during the sinking of the ship and it really captures that inevitability that is taking place you guys have mentioned this several times um, this is where we see the couple the old couple in the bed together um, we see a parent reading to her child we see all these different people and the way that they are coping with their final moments and we understand that all the people we're seeing right now None of them make it out alive. And so it takes this big event and breaks it down into these these tiny human moments. And yet here we have this this group, this musical group that's choosing to sacrifice their last moments. And, I, and it makes me wonder, like, what would I do? Would I fight for my life like so many people are trying to do? Or would I want to spend my last few moments sacrificially trying to ease someone else's acceptance of what was coming in that last moment. And simultaneously, I think for them doing what they loved, playing their music with people they care about, practicing their art, kind of going out, doing that thing. So it's beautiful and it's, it's tragic all at once. Um, and, and then it's especially made even worse, you know, knowing that this is a real story. These people did this um, act. And I think likewise, it, it's tied to something else that really impacts me, which is just watching the ship's officers doing their job throughout this event, loading the boats. I mean, I, I just, I can't imagine it, guys, like at all. You know, I've been on a ship and I, and I've imagined what it would like, be like if my ship went down and how I would handle that. Just seeing people stay calm despite the circumstances and knowing that they're not getting out of there, like to spend your last few moments trying to help other people continue to live their life while knowing that you're not going to do it. I mean, this is like the stuff that we see in hero comic book movies all the time, but it's, it's on a you and me level. And so I just really resonated with those groups of people and their choices, not because I think that everybody should make their choice, but because it's it's pretty powerful when someone does. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was telling Aaron it was ironic that all three of us picked my my personal three favorite moments from the entire movie. Like yes. that moment from the band, I think, is a moment that a lot of people graze over because, like you said, Aaron, it doesn't have to do with Jack and Rose, but it's such an impactful moment. And I just... Rose leaving the lifeboat is actually usually the... That's usually when the tears start for me. Like, I usually can hold it together pretty well up until that moment. But the minute she chooses him and potential death over any other life that she would have without him, I'm like, oh. 
Yeah. <laughs> Your heart may not go on. Oh, God. It may freeze oh, to death. It may. It very well may. Well, thank you guys so much. This has been awesome. Um, great conversation, Aaron. I'm so glad you were able to join us for this. Um, just so you know, by the way, you are our first female guest. So you get like ever? that virtual award. Yes. Yes, mm-hmm. you are. Yeah. So we appreciate that um, very much. And we'll definitely have you back again in the future. So where can people find you online if they want to talk to you? Is there anywhere they can do that on social media? And where can they find your your art, your work, the things that you do? For sure. Um, you could always reach out to me um, on my website, essentially Um My name is spelled a little differently. It's E-R-Y-N-N-E. Um, I'm also under essentially Aaron on Instagram, and you can find me at Aaron underscore Hundley on Twitter as well. Fantastic. Well, it's been a privilege and a pleasure serving with you guys and talking through this conversation. Next week, we have a new FF Plus coming at you, bringing you some spoiler-free movie reviews with Serenity and The Kid Who Would Be King, as well as our reactions to the upcoming Oscar nominations and the latest Shazam trailer. And then we're going to finish out Director Month with James Cameron's Avatar. So please come back and join us. Enjoy the conversation. And we hope to see you next time. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.